Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Summer Podcast number four, uh, which is an ongoing little mini-series we're doing in August where we have some new material. Today, I want to talk about uh, David Lynch, Twin Peaks, the nexus of TV and cinema, all of these fascinating things about a director, uh, David Lynch's style, how TV shows work uh, when you're a showrunner, which is similar to a director and yet different from a director. All that stuff is fascinating to me, especially in the context of Twin Peaks. Uh, And I'm going to be blogging about this and everything. So this is just the first of a multi-nerdy effusion of uh, expression over Twin Peaks, which I think in its totality is one of the greatest works of art of the last 50 years. And then what we're going to repost today, because we like to do a repost to uh, maybe introduce new listeners to things that we've done in the past, uh, get people reacquainted with the Secret Movie Club podcast while we're on a a sort of semi-summer break. Uh, We are going to post the very first Secret Movie Club Defend This Movie number one, which we recorded June 4th, or we posted June 4th, 2021, about uh, two years ago and change. And one of the movies that I love is the James Bond movie, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which is holds the distinction of being uh, the one one Bond. Uh, George Lazenby was, in, was James Bond for one movie. It was this movie made after Sean Connery left the series uh, in 1968, I think. It started as Diana Rigg. Uh, James Bond gets married. It has a downer ending. Uh, it's very atypical from the Bond formula. It's also, in my opinion, one of the top three Bond films ever made. Steve does not think that. He has never got it. And so Steve said, let's do a podcast where you have to defend that movie. And so therefore, Defend This Movie Was Born. Uh, by the time that you hear this, it will be Friday, August 18th. And we continue our secret series. Tonight is night four. Uh, Again, from what we're going to talk about, you probably can guess what the secret series is. It is everything that would be part of the canon. Uh, Tonight we are doing the middle of season two, uh, including the very famous episode where the murderer was revealed. Tomorrow, August 19th, is actually our one all-day secret series. Uh, That is day five. The second half, episodes 10 to 21 of season two, are notoriously known for being very uneven. So much so that even David Lynch says, hey, I went to go you know, do Wild at Heart, and when I came back, I, I couldn't believe some of the choices that had been made. And rather than break that up across a bunch of nights, sometimes I think it's good to just get it over with. And we're going to have donuts in the morning. We're going to have cherry pie at night. And we are ending the day with one of the greatest Twin Peaks episodes ever made. David Lynch came back and he did episode 22, um, Beyond Life and Death. And uh, it was like nothing. It, it even topped it topped the, the murder reveal episode. Thursday, August 24th is night six of our secret series. This is when we're doing the feature Uh, And we're doing all the missing pieces. Then on Friday, August 25th, we are honored director, writer-director James Nguyen actually changed his flight uh, to Vietnam so that he could be with us for Birdemic Shock and Terror and Birdemic 3 Sea Eagle. If you've uh, never seen Birdemics, uh, it's a trilogy now. Uh, James Nguyen was really influenced by Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Alfred Hitchcock is our director of the year. And he made this movie in 2010, Birdemic. Uh, that is mind-blowing uh, and clearly inspired by the birds. I don't want to say more. Uh, you just have to see it to, to like understand it, but it you will not regret it. And James Nguyen is with us, so I'm really looking forward to this.
Saturday, August 26th. I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I want to just give you guys the heads up now. Um, we are doing, uh, we're honored to be uh, hosting the Big Bad Film Festival, which is dedicated to action movies here in Los Angeles. And they've chosen us to screen the South Korean masterpiece, action masterpiece, The Man from Nowhere, uh, which is considered one of the greatest uh, South Korean action movies and one of the great action movies of the last like 15 years. So if you want to discover something new, you want to be part of a film festival, uh, you can get tickets for that, as well as everything we said. And there are 10 nights in our secret series. So I was just telling you, I believe nights of four, five, and six. You can then look at our calendar in September for nights seven, eight, nine, and ten. Uh, as always, you can uh, write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. You can find out our entire calendar, which continues to get posted at um, uh, uh, secretmovieclub.com. Go to calendar. You can get tickets at Eventbrite. We just announced a few new uh, events that I'm very, very excited about. Probably the biggest one, September 2nd is The Lodger. We're back at the Million Dollar Theater Movie Palace. Lodger is Alfred Hitchcock's uh, first masterpiece. It was a silent film. It, it made him Hitchcock, essentially. And we have a new score by the Jack Curtis Dabowski Ensemble uh, commissioned just for Secret Movie Club. I'm very excited about it. We want to have you. Uh, and then stay tuned. Check next week, because I think we're going to be announcing a few more September events that are very, very exciting. Uh, that's it. As always, if you like what we do, we really would love a review, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, or if you attend our events, if it's Yelp uh, or um, a, you know Google Review, the, the reviews really, really help. And if you, you're like, hey, I don't like what you do, I think you could do it better, we, we need that. So write us at community at secretmovieclub.com and tell us, or put it in a review. I mean, it's, it's America. It's a democracy. We got to take it. We got to get better. Today, I really wanted to talk about David Lynch's style and the nexus of TV and cinema, specifically through the lens of Twin Peaks, uh, and the interesting similarities and differences between the two mediums. Uh, and let's just dive into it. There's going to be a lot to say. Uh, you probably know all this, so I don't want to go into the the basic stuff. I'd, I'd rather hopefully just add value, be of service by talking about stuff maybe you don't know if you're a David Lynch fan or a Twin Peaks fan. But long story short is that David Lynch had no interest in TV. Uh, he was a feature guy, Eraserhead, Blue Velvet, Dune, Elephant Man. He was prepping or getting ready to do Wild at Heart. But an agent at CAA, who wasn't even his agent, as I understand, Tony Krantz, but the, this shows you what a good agent Tony Krantz was, kept trying to convince Lynch to do network television. And Lynch was like, why? You know, like, I don't want to have to deal with the censors, and I'm a feature guy. And uh, But Lynch and co-writer Mark Frost had just written a comedy script called One Saliva Bubble, which I'm always bummed never got made. There are these famous unmade Lynch movies. I read Ronnie Rocket, which was incredible. I haven't read One Saliva Bubble, although I'd love to get my hands on it. But those are two of the ones that uh, everyone talks about when you love Lynch, because that would have been Lynch in the 80s, early 90s. But One Saliva Bubble was an out-and-out -out comedy, and supposedly Lynch had a blast writing it with Mark Frost. They were doubling over laughing, uh, but... Nobody made it, and it got very close, Lynch said, but it didn't get made. So he and Frost eventually listened to Tony Krantz, and they thought, well, let's, you know, let's write a pilot. Let's see what we come up with. And they came up with something called Northwest Passage. That's what it was originally called, and the pilot retains that title, and it was going to take place in uh, North Dakota. But then they moved it to the Pacific Northwest, where Lynch had actually grown up. Lynch was born in Missoula, Montana, but then moved all around Idaho, Washington State, and uh, Lynch came to the idea 
basically having grown up in the Northwest and really feeling the supernatural transcendent pull and terror of the woods, especially at night. And Mark Frost came up with the title, I heard Twin Peaks, and the television experience. And they wrote this pilot, they read it, they thought, this is actually pretty good. The pilot was about the murder of the beloved prom and homecoming queen, Laura Palmer, uh, who is discovered murdered on a beach wrapped in plastic. And very shortly after, FBI agent Dale Cooper, played by Kyle MacLachlan. Laura Palmer is played by Cheryl Lee, uh, who really delivers one of the great performances, as does Kyle MacLachlan. We'll get into that. But um, basically, uh, Kyle MacLachlan, straight shooting, brilliant, intuitive uh, FBI agent Dale Cooper comes to town to solve this murder. There's a whole host of amazing characters, uh, it, uh, too many almost to name, that form this quirky town, Twin Peaks. They uh, make the pilot as a TV movie of the week, and my understanding is that ABC, which at the time was pre-Disney and run by, wait for it, Bob Iger, uh, picked it up, basically thinking, well, we can make our money back because if you're a good b- business person, you always got to figure out the way that you're in the black right away, was, well, let's just have them do the pilot and then shoot a European ending and we can market it in Europe as a David Lynch movie and, you know, nothing comes of it. We, we got a David Lynch movie. So uh, David Lynch did it. To their surprise, uh, the pilot got picked up and ordered for what's called a back eight. This is in the days of network television before streaming and really even before cable, the boom of cable television. So back eight was was when a series wasn't working and they canceled it, they would program one of these series late in the spring that would just be eight episodes uh, and uh, it would finish out the season. And, you know, every now and then you get lucky. And they did on Twin Peaks. The pilot showed on a Sunday night. It was like a movie of the week almost. 90 minutes directed by David Lynch. No one had seen anything like it before. It was funny. It was strange. It felt like a David Lynch movie, but it was on ABC, network television, prime time, and the country flipped for it. This was in 1990. And so the back eight uh, was picked up. uh, And the first eight episodes that comprise the first season are pretty consistent. Lynch directed the pilot and episode two. Different directors, including Rivers Edge's uh, Tim Hunter, uh, famous DP of The Natural and The Black Stallion, Caleb Deschanel, uh, Leslie Linka-Gladder, Mark Frost himself, uh, Tina Rathborn, I hope I'm saying her name right, Rathborn, uh, all directed uh, the other episodes. Uh, and it, the, it was a culture, pop culture phenomenon. In fact, this is probably, has to be maybe the pinnacle of Lynch being known by everybody. No one could believe it. What is really interesting here is that Twin Peaks in many ways has to be looked at as one of the er television shows that would inspire a whole second and third generation of showrunners and creators who would then go to cable, uh, where they really would have free reign. This is people like David Chase of The Sopranos, David Simon The Wire, all these uh, cable shows. A lot of it can be traced back to David Lynch and Mark Frost's Twin Peaks, where people were like, you can do that? You know, it, because prior to that, of course there had been great television, and I love TV as a medium. Uh, you know, you've got I Love Lucy, you've got Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone, which is from the 60s, as authorial and auteur as anything. Uh, you've got uh, The Fugitive, you've got The Mary Tyler Moore Show, you've got Taxi, you've got Cheers, you've got Frasier, uh, although that's now getting, you know, beyond. But 
certainly there had been great TV, great TV movies. There was Playhouse 90s, Requiem for a Heavyweight. So many great directors came out of TV. Uh, Steven Spielberg, Bob Altman, William Friedkin, Sidney Lumet. You know, so TV was doing just fine before Twin Peaks, but the marriage or the meeting of cinema and TV really, I think, Twin Peaks acted as a match, a catalyst for a lot of people to say, oh, well, that's what I want to do. <laughs> I don't necessarily want to make the next lawyer show or, uh, you know, you can watch Network. It's always funny when you watch uh, Sidney Lumet and Patty Chayefsky's Network because they really make fun of the rote programming. I, you know, I, I don't want to do the next cop show or doctor show or lawyer show. I want to do something like Twin Peaks. What was interesting to me in watching the pilot, and I highly recommend, if you've never seen it, uh, it, like I said, it begins David Lynch's weird journey of every time he would, almost every time he would direct a Twin Peaks episode, that would become the next greatest hour of television that had ever been done. Uh, The pilot uh, that Lynch directed, much of his style uh, that we had seen in Blue Velvet, that we had seen in Elephant Man, Eraserhead, and, you know, in in a different way in Dune, it was all there. It's sort of amazing when you watch the pilot to go, wow, that was shown on a Sunday night at like 9 p.m., at 8 p.m. I mean, one of the opening images is Laura Palmer, uh, blue, dead, wrapped in plastic uh, on a beach. Uh, And so you started to see, uh, and there were other elements of Lynch's style I just wanted to talk about briefly that I'm always obsessed with. Uh, And what's interesting is that when Lynch is not directing, no surprise, those elements aren't there. And you begin to realize, even when Lynch was show running, which he was uh, for season one with Mark Frost, uh, it, it is different. And I want to talk about that in a moment. But when Lynch was directing, you get these insert shots that Lynch does amazingly, that no one does but Lynch, where it'll cut to a fire in a fireplace. And it'll be a little closer than anyone else would frame a fireplace shot. And you'll hear the sound. Uh, or it'll be a street light. Uh, but the way the street light at night is framed, going from green to yellow to red, uh, is very unsettling, blowing in the wind. Or uh, the way the B-roll, uh, and I don't know who shot the B-roll because they reused the shots over and over in the series, but the way the waterfall of the mill bar- dumps into a lake or the way an owl moves its head or the way the trees in the forest at night move in the wind, all of these things are incredibly Lynchian. Uh, and in the pilot, you also see this thing that Lynch does brilliantly. Uh, and I, you can see it in Mulholland Drive, too, and Blue Velvet uh, in, in slightly different ways where he will anchor the movie on a character who in some ways radiates light and positivity uh, and spirituality and, a, a, you know, often naivete. But then they'll be plunged into a very unsettling dark, dark world. Uh, Jeffrey Beaumont from uh, Blue Velvet, uh, also played by Colin McLaughlin. Uh, Dale Cooper, Twin Peaks. Uh, Naomi Watts's character in Mulholland Drive, and of course that comes with a twist. But the way that she's introduced and the way we understand her is just sort of like pure talent and optimism and sunshine. And, uh, and also, interestingly, uh, kind of an investigator. It's interesting to see those uh, connections. Um, it's interesting to see a movie like... Uh, Lost Highway, where there is no such character. Uh, there, There's no such pure light character. Um, but also, Lynch is hilariously funny. And, you know, he doesn't like to talk too much. 
and I, this is what I think makes him a genius, uh, you know, and above us mere mortals. He doesn't want to tell you what the things mean, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a there there or that he hasn't actually thought it out. He just doesn't want to uh, ruin it. He doesn't want to limit it. Uh, but when you watch the original Twin Peaks pilot, at the same time that we're watching uh, Laura Palmer's parents go through extreme grief, we're seeing these really weird sequences of uh, some other place and dream sequences. We're also getting really funny uh, comedic scenes. Uh, everything from when Bobby and uh, you know his friend get put in jail and then James get put in jail and they bark at him to um, uh, some of the comedy that uh, some of the side characters embody like Pete Martell, the Jack Nance character. So Lynch has always known that you need to alternate the the horror with comedy. They really, I mean, he's a painter, and you almost feel like he gets that those are complementary colors, even if it's on an intuitive level. And he does it better than anybody because he doesn't ruin, in my opinion, or disrupt uh, the style of either side. Um, what was interesting, though, is now that I've watched season one, what's interesting is watching the two David Lynch-directed episodes, the pilot and then uh, the episode, you could call it two or three, which is Zen or How to Catch a Killer, uh, in comparison with the other episodes directed by other people. Oh, Dwayne Dunham, uh, with the editor, directed uh, the, the episode just after the pilot. And what's interesting when you see them is there's a Twin Peaks vibe. They're very famous scenes in all of them. There's, there's you know, the scene of Audrey doing the dance and the double R. There's the scene of uh, Audrey twisting the the cherry stem into a bow at, at one-eyed jacks there are um you know great character moments great beats you can see how lynch and frost as showrunners have established a, a style essentially a tone they're using angelo battlementi's music almost like godard used music in contempt those cues get used over and over again but you never exhaust them they're so hypnotic and dreamy uh but the directors that come on board do great things, do their own things, but they're not Lynch. And that was the funny thing to me to see was occasionally I would see what I felt personally was a bit of a clunky flashback or a clunky insert shot or the actors were directed in a way where it, it worked, but maybe it wasn't quite how Lynch would get that performance or Lynch would direct it. You can see why Lynch, when he came back for season three, which was on Showtime, directed every single episode. Uh, and we'll we'll talk about that uh, another time. Um, but w w maybe what I'll, I'll leave off here, I just want to leave off on, on two notes. Uh, and there's so much I want to talk about, but I'll leave off on two notes. First is, I highly recommend that everybody who can, if you've never seen it, watch the ending of the European pilot. If you've seen the American pilot for Twin Peaks, the American pilot and the European version are identical until the last 20 minutes. And you can actually just go into where Sarah Palmer... Laura's mother, played by the amazing Grace Zabriskie, wakes up and screams on her couch. In the American version, she has this vision of a gloved hand taking the necklace, half the necklace that was around Laura Palmer's neck that James and Donna buried out in the woods, and that's the end, and it cuts to credits. In the European version, she wakes up screaming. She sees more. She sees Bob, basically, the hiding in Laura's bedroom, that famous image. Then it cuts to Cooper, uh, Cooper has a dream. He calls Harry. He knows who's killed Laura Palmer. They go to the hospital. They meet the one-armed man. The one-armed man delivers this crazy monologue. They go into the basement of the hospital. There's Bob, uh, played by the amazing Frank De Silva, saying, I'm going to kill again. The one-armed man shoots Bob. 
And then suddenly it says 25 years later. And it's the Red Room sequence where Cooper is sitting in the Red Room and there's Laura Palmer and the man from another place played by Michael Anderson. And this is the first time we see the Red Room. And uh, Laura Palmer whispers into Cooper's ear, whispers, uh, you know, she whispers into his ear, uh, the man from another place dances. It's incredible. What blows me away about that uh, European pilot is, in my opinion, humbly, it totally dispels all the people who are like, Lynch is just weird for weirdness's sake or he doesn't know where he's going. Everything that would be in season one, season two, and most miraculously, season three, directed 25 years later, is the seeds of them, at least, and how they could develop are there in the European pilot. In other words, Lynch knew what he, he had some idea that he wanted um, this red room. He wanted a connection between Laura Palmer and Dale Cooper. He wanted to go 25 years into the future. He wanted some kind of transcendent horror with the psychological horror. He wanted Bob to be a representation of some kind of threat of violence in the home. Uh, all of that's there. So, uh, you know, that's another thing of, I think, as maybe a movie maker or a storyteller, Lynch is really setting his markers. Uh, and, you know, if you were just TV and you can see the TV influence of Twin Peaks 2, that was interesting to me as well, is when you're watching the episodes not directed by Lynch, they actually tilt TV, uh, which makes all the sense in the world. And then the episodes directed by Lynch tilt cinema. So uh, the TV tilting episodes, non-Lynch-directed episodes, they more, you feel like they're setting up cliffhangers and threads and things for characters. They're thinking like, oh, we may be doing seasons upon seasons of this, and we got to create a whole bunch of narrative strands that keep people coming back every week. Lynch, although I'm sure he, he you know, wanted that and, and did that, Lynch is, is doing something different. Uh, whenever he directs, because the episodes also feel self-contained um, in a way that the other episodes don't. So I'm, I have to end there. Otherwise, I'm just going to talk, 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 talk. Uh, but I do want to say uh, that in watching Twin Peaks, it really got me thinking about the nexus of TV and film and the skill sets and what a showrunner does, which is sort of set a tone, set a world, set a house style. Uh, but also, I think, create the space for a whole bunch of collaborators to write the scripts, uh, tell an ongoing story, meet the harsh TV deadlines, and, you know, turn out great, great work, but make sure that the train is running. Uh, versus a movie director who, in some ways, is trying to make a singularly great work that rises above the noise uh, and will fight for it in a in a stubborn way that a, a TV director is, is you know at least as it was classically known, the TV directors know the drill. They they know hey I got eight days to shoot this so you know I got eight days to shoot sixty pages. I'm gonna have to shoot eight to nine pages to ten pages a day, uh, and I'm just not gonna be able to do that that shot or storyboard all this that the other. But Lynch. There's a tension there, and it's a tension that's so exciting. And I think that when you see filmmakers do TV, that tension to me, being somebody who's such a movie lover, that's the TV that uh, I love the most. Uh, when Bergman does scenes from A Marriage or Fanny and Alexander, when Rainer Werner Fassbender does World on a Wire or uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz most famously, uh, when those filmmakers come 
uh, and they they bring now that being said and I'll end on this I also think there's TV that was definitely made to be TV that is as good as that and and exists in the TV plane I I I, I hold up the sitcom Cheers as just untouchable uh, for pure joy and clearly. Uh, a whole group of people uh, discovering and developing and adapting and evolving across, I think, 13, 12, 13 seasons. Uh, and it's a half-hour sitcom, totally different thing. But almost every episode is a great one-act. Uh, Faulty Towers, but that's John Cleese from Monty Python. But Faulty Towers is great. You know, Ricky Gervais's The Office, which very much feels um, Faulty Towers influenced, is it stands on its own. Uh, and now I'm reminded Lars von Trier uh, was influenced by Twin Peaks and did The Kingdoms, parts one, two, and three. Uh, I love part three. I think part three, which just came out last year, is is great. However, I hold one and two, Kingdoms one and two, as also some of the greatest TV ever made. Uh, and uh, so anyway, I, I will end there. Those are just some thoughts as we begin our journey with Twin Peaks. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts. So now, uh, thank you guys so much. Here we go. Uh, We're going to move to the podcast part. This is a repost of Secret Movie Club Defend This Movie Number 1, which we uh, posted June 4th, 2021. This is the very first side podcast we did where someone had to defend a movie. That's going to be me against someone who disliked the movie. That's going to be my friend Steve Grest. The movie is the 1968 James Bond uh, movie, uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, starring Diana Rigg and George Lazenby. Uh, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. We wanted to repost it because I, I think movie debate is one of my favorite parts of cinephilia and loving movies. And I, I think the dialogue is always great. So I, I hope you're inspired by this. And if you like it, we got 10 more you can find in our, our back back catalog. And uh, we will be back next week with another Secret Movie Club Summer Podcast, number five. Uh, enjoy. Have a great week. And I love you, family. How does it feel to be so wrong about something? I'm not wrong. I mean, that's. I mean, so that feels what, great. That's what the Nazis thought. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the first person to say that. How are the Nazis at bobsledding? Probably not as good as the Swiss. Well, better than the Americans. I mean, well, that's true. Not as good as the Jamaicans, though. That's true. But you're still wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Secret Movie Clubbers. This is Craig, the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club. And today we are introducing a side podcast that we're going to do from time to time called Defend This Movie, where we take a movie or an issue, cinematic issue, and uh, two people take either sides of a proposition and debate it. Because one of the greatest things about watching movies is being able then to have those heated, uh, enjoyable conversations afterwards. I just want to let you know this week, which is the first week of June 2021, uh, we are showing tonight at the Secret Movie Club Theater in downtown LA's Arts District, a double feature of great early 80s comedies. We are doing Robert Zemeckis' Used Cars with Kurt Russell at 7.30 p.m., And we are doing uh, the amazing Rick Moranis, Dave Thomas directed Strange Brew about the McKenzie brothers from the SCTV sketch uh, starring Max von Sydow, of all people, uh, right after that. Tomorrow at the Million Dollar Theater, Saturday, June 5th 
at 11 a.m. We are doing Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia on 35 millimeter. Uh, tomorrow night, we are doing a double bill of sci-fi mashups. So first up, uh, Alex Proyas's amazing sci-fi noir, Dark City. And then after that, George Miller's incredible sci-fi western, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Uh, and everything I just said is on 35. And then on Sunday, we are doing our family Sunday at the drive-in, as we always do. And it is Richard Linklater's School of Rock with Jack Black. There is much more. You can go to secretmovieclub.com to check it all out. And now, on with the show. Today, we are doing a Secret Movie Club pilot experiment, which I'm very excited about. We have special guest Steve Grest with us, who's Stephen Gregory Grest. Oh, yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, who came up with this idea, which I thought was great, which is rather than our regular podcast format, today is a special format where we are just picking one movie that is very divisive and actually pretty universally agreed to be divisive. That movie is the James Bond movie, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, starring George Lazenby, the only one-time Bond made in, I think it was 68. Let's see, we have the DVD right here. We do. We, we have the Blu-ray with us. But Steve uh, made the suggestion that we should debate this because I love this movie and Steve definitely thinks that it doesn't work. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, 1969, I think it's one of the worst Bond movies. Go out and say it. And, and I'm continually shocked and surprised how many Bond fans think it's one of the best. So there you go. So this is the perfect movie for this pilot program. Steve has suggested, and I love it, we're going to call this Defend This Movie. So on today's podcast, uh, my name is Craig. I'm the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club. Steve is an amazing screenwriter. We are friends from our USC film school days. And we've been having some form of this conversation yes. for over two decades about many movies. Because Steve and I love each other, but we often disagree on what makes a movie a great movie. And we overlap on certain movies. Like you and I both love Raiders. Sure. Well, who, if, who doesn't? We both love Lebowski. Yeah. But there are also plenty of movies that I love that you're like, what are you thinking? And then there are movies you love where I'm like, what are you thinking? Less of those, but yeah. So anything you want to add to this intro? <laughs> I just, I want you to defend this movie to me. I want you to tell me why this movie is the one of the best. You said it's one of your three favorite Bond oh, movies. Oh, top three, easy. Top three favorite Bonds. You convince me because I've seen it many times. I've seen it at least four or five times considering I don't like it that much because I keep coming back and going, what is it about that people see? And I, I don't feel like it. I win right there. I mean, what bad movie do you watch four or five times? I've seen all the Bond movies many times, part, part of it. And in fact, even uh, the world is not enough. I've seen them all at least twice. Well, not all of them, not, maybe not the new ones. Uh, about 15 years ago, my brother and I watched them all in order, like one per day over the course of a month, uh, which was an interesting perspective so i've seen this one two or three times and then i watched it last year and then we watched it again just now in preparation so that makes four at least four times okay and we should say is the end of this intro steve and i are here at the secret movie club in downtown la's arts district we we gave it its full shot yeah we watched it on the big screen in the best possible projection barring film we watched it digitally and we're drinking whiskey provided by another friend joe ballerini when he was over here and we're watching a john ford movie thank you joe. yeah thank you joe <laughs> this is not a commercial for whiskey but we are drinking your whiskey but it should be a commercial for whiskey uh unless you have a problem with alcohol you should be drinking whiskey right now yeah drink it while we while we argue and you'll yeah. get on our wavelength sooner <laughs> <laughs> you and I were saying that we're going to do this Oxford debate style. So the proposition that you and I are arguing is 
On Her Majesty's Secret Service, starring George Lazenby from 1969, directed by Peter Hunt, definitely part of the James Bond canon. It was produced by Broccoli and Saltzman, and it was the movie that came after Sean Connery's You Only Live Twice. The proposition is, On Her Majesty's Secret Service is one of the best Bonds. And I'm going to defend that, and you're going to tear me a new one. So that's how it's going to go. <laughs> okay. Normally, the way that Oxford debates work is you have like an opening statement. I'm going to go with a one minute opening statement. We're going to keep this terse and concise because something I think you and I do overlap on is I think if you can keep it short, keep it short. Okay. Yeah. You should only go long if it's seven samurai. So ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'm going to drink a little more whiskey. Oh, so good. Why I think on Her Majesty's Secret Service is one of the top three bonds. I will start by saying for anybody who is a James Bond aficionado that I would probably say from Russia with Love is my favorite. I think that's the greatest Bond. And maybe we can get in this conversation why I think that is starring Sean Connery was the second movie after Dr. No. That's my favorite. The number two, I think actually would be this one. So actually, when I said top three, let me take that back. For me, this is top two. Number three for me would either be Goldfinger or Casino Royale with Daniel Craig. So those are my four, for whatever it's worth. Why do I think Honor Majesties is great? I'll give you a few bullet points right off the bat. Let's start with the elephant in the room. George Lazenby is agreed, and I'm going to concede this right away. He is not a great actor, and he is a light Bond. And I think you should come at me. It is correct that if you're making a James Bond movie, you want your James Bond to be Connery. And to watch a movie where it's Lazenby and it's not Connery, he's not owning it the way that Connery does. And I want to concede that right away. That being said, I think it's one of the strongest scripts. I think it has some of the strongest directing of any Bond movie. It has some of the best sequences, some of the best editing. I think the Bond woman, Diana Rigg, is along with Ava Green from Casino Royale, One of the top Bond women, this is a movie where Bond and the woman are equals, and that's rarely the case. And I would say that there's an arc here, and I also would say that even though you couldn't make Bond movie after Bond movie with an unhappy ending, and let's just get right to it, this is the only Bond movie with an unhappy ending. Even Casino Royale ends on a bit of an up. This is the only one that's like, whoa, it is a downer, downer, a downer ending. It is its own movie with an arc and levels and shocks and emotion that transcends the Bond formula. So that's my opener. Wait, it's like you're making this out to be the Empire Strikes Back of Bond movies. It is the Empire Strikes Back <laughs> of Bond Come movies. On. You just made my argument for me, son. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's what you're trying to say. You're just wrong. Here's the deal. I'm going to start. Yes, Lazenby's weak. It's not his fault, I think. Diana Rigg is maybe one of the best actresses to play a Bond girl, as evidenced by her work outside of Bond, which a lot of Bond uh, actresses didn't really have great work outside yeah, of Yeah, great point. Being in the Avengers TV series all the way to most more recently being in um, uh, uh, Game of Thrones. But I'm going to start with the other elephant in the room. I'm sorry. James Bond, a product of the 60s, James Bond doesn't get married. But that's not my biggest problem with the movie. The movie's slow. He barely does any damn spy work. It's called On Her Majesty's Secret Service. He spends about 20% of the movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service. The rest of the time, he's off gallivanting with Diana Rigg, falling in love, and then, like, dumping her at the moment he finds out about Blofeld, and then he needs her to... The only reason they fall in love again is because he's in a bind and she needs her help which I may be getting ahead of myself in this argument, but after You Only Live Twice, where Blofeld, you know, which takes, I think is maybe 67, where in the middle of the space race, where the 
it may seem silly to us now, but Spectre is revealed to be an organization that is so damn powerful and secretive that they have rocket ships that can eat up United States and Soviet rocket ships and hide in a uh, Japanese volcano. Here we have Blofeld solving allergies, and he wants to be a count, and James Bond is just f***ing around with some girl that he just found, and then, I don't know, blows up a ski lodge? Come on. They're, they're the opening salvos. So, debate. My argument is only as strong as its weakest components. So let me get to the weakest components. In cons- I don't know what kind of lawyer shit you're pulling on right here where you're trying to point out your own weaknesses. Just <laughs> That's what I'm doing, but that's how, that's how debate works. Uh, so, I mean, you're right. That is exactly what I'm doing, but I need to concede all that stuff up front if I'm going to make a persuasive argument. You just, no one uh, you know, uh, requested a code red here. I think... <laughs> But I need to do this because I love this movie. What I have on my side is my true passion for this. I'm not hired to show for Honor Majesty's Secret that's, Service. That's true. You, you've, you know, we've been friends for a long time. It, you're not just making this up for the sake of argument. I've always loved you've it. loved this movie. You yeah. know, so this is a sincere argument. That's my strength. But let me concede the, this stuff. There is a lot of silliness in this movie. Let's get to it right away. I mean, even though you were talking about Honor <laughs> you only live twice, and you were saying things like, he has his own volcano in Tokyo. But this movie, there are all these women who are supposedly being cured of allergies, but they're going to be the agents of germ warfare, but they're all hot. Obviously. Yeah, that's kind of silly. Uh, you and I were talking about a lot of where Mike Myers' Austin Powers comes from definitely originates, I think, in this movie, and you were saying you only live twice, because there's just a lot of silliness. Uh, this is a psychedelic bond. There's this weird scene where the women like are in their bed and Telly Savalas is hypnotizing them. That Telly Savalas voice that would hypnotize anyone, right? <laughs> Who loves you, baby? Yeah. <laughs> Kojak voice. <laughs> I mean, right there, Blofeld is played by Telly Savalas. Whereas previously it was kind of like a Donald Pleasance or a Max von Sydow or a, a European Blofeld. This is like a New York Blofeld. Well, yeah, and Donald Pleasance in the previous movie is the way he plays it with his accent. It's it's a little nebulous as to where he's from. When you believe it. I think it's fair to say that you never believe that Telly Savalas is European. For some reason, he's pretending to be a French count, and he's straight out of New York. Other things I think you can acknowledge, too. This is the bond that breaks from formula. And I think it's fair to say that the bonds that break from formula tend to be the most divisive, by which I mean Honor Majesties, uh, the Timothy Dalton, you and I were talking about this uh, second movie, License to Kill, where he just goes off on a vendetta because of Felix Leiter. That's kind of a divisive bond. Some people love it. Some people hate it because he's not, I think in that one, he's not officially sanctioned. It's not an MI6 mission. It's like a vendetta mission, a revenge mission. As you said, the opener isn't bond on a mission. The opener is Bond on vacation, which we'll get into in a second. It's also true that the basic spy crux to this movie doesn't kick in for 40 minutes. The first 40 minutes of this movie is just him and Diana Rigg and their relationship. Probably the big thing that divides people is the ending is an utter downer. They get married. She gets shot. He's with her cradling her head in his hands. And that's the end of the movie. And he says, we have all the time in the world. He's holding his dead wife's head in his hand. And you're like, wait. Is this a James Bond movie? Because, you know, when you watch a Bond movie, like when you watch an indie movie, what you're seeing it for is escapist spy fun. You're not seeing it to be made to feel bad. And so let's just concede that all this stuff broke from Bond and, in fact, was so unsuccessful, even though the movie did okay, that they never did it again. I mean, you covered a lot for me. First of all, whether it was 
by his own accord or with the producers, they broke with George Lazenby after this, and they went right back to the formula and paid Connery who knows how many millions of $1970 to come back or $71 for uh, Diamonds Are Forever. And ironically, one of the most yeah, mediocre bonds. But no, it, it's, there's very little spy work in it. What is is not very interesting. It's two things. On one hand, I do, and call me outdated, have a kind of a fundamental opposition to Bond getting married. That's just antithetical to what the character was set up for. But also, and I don't have a problem with a downer of an ending, it's just he got married, but it was also it was very forced. He meets this girl. They have sex. Then the dad wants them to get married, offers him a dowry because she's troubled. Bond says she doesn't need me. She needs a psychiatrist. This is a very troubled woman, although I think they play that. And she's not as troubled as they make it out to be. No, that, that's a really good point. bizarre 60s sexual, sexual going on. By the way, Bond smacks her around in, in, you know, the second time they meet. Her dad punches her at some point. So there's some bizarre... Male abuse by father figures yeah. and lovers. I'm far from the woke police, but I'm still watching this going, wait, what? Because I don't know how many times Connery did that to, unless he was trying to like beat a confession out of someone, but he certainly didn't do it to anyone he was attracted to, actually. He did do jujitsu and judo with Pussy Galore, but that was more as foreplay. If you say, hey, listen, we're going to do a Bond where Bond gets married, which, by the way, Bond did get technically married in the previous movie. Oh, it yeah. It was just under a ruse. I mean, that was part of the uh, marketing of You Only Live Twice, is Bond will turn Japanese, Bond will get married. This time they go, let's let Bond really get married. Let's have him fall in love, sort of. Drop the woman like a hot ton of bricks the moment he gets the case. Totally abandon her. And then when he's in need of help, three quarters away through the movie, she shows up like a guardian angel. Do helps him out. Yeah. The greatest counterfactual about the movie is what would this movie have been like if Connery had stayed? My understanding is that Connery was actually offered the role and they offered him an obscene amount of money. And he just said, I I can't like I I just can't make another bond. Had Connery been in this movie, would it actually be more universally agreed as a great bond film? That's we'll never know. Connery certainly would have brought his history. We would have known him as Bond. And he, he's Connery. I mean, he's dope. So so that might have corrected what often is leveled at the movie, which is that Lazenby is weirdly kind of a weak center. The explicit thing you said, and I think it does need to be addressed, is while there's ridiculousness, ridiculousness to a certain extent characterizes a lot of Bond films. It's ridiculousness that is key to the plot. Whereas in this movie, there's a lot of script stuff that's just weird. That doesn't feel like other Bond movies. Like as you said, 40 minutes of the movie is Bond and Tracy getting to know each other, and then Tracy just disappears. And by the way, then there's five minutes of him making photocopies in in some lawyer's office, and that's like the first spy And looking at a Playboy, as I pointed out. Yeah, and the only thing that's interesting spy-wise is that he gets a photocopier, which I guess in 1969 was a big deal, through the window from his, like, he's got, like, a, you know, an operative down there. But, like, that's the first spy scene in the whole movie, is that he goes and breaks into some lawyer's office and makes a photocopy. And that happens at, like, minute 30. I think it might be even later. Having conceded all those things, my big arguments about why I think this is one of the great Bond movies is actually probably the biggest one is that it does break formula. You know, formulas are double-edged swords. And what, what happens when you have a formula is you know what works. But you tend to take fewer chances and you tend to be like, we just have to produce Coca-Cola again. And we need to make people think that it's new, but it's really not new because they don't really want something new. What they want is Coca-Cola again. And that's always the argument. That's why whether it's a Marvel movie, a TV show or a Bond movie, what you want to see 
is the formula is every man wants to be James Bond. He gets to travel the world. He sleeps with the most beautiful women. He saves the world. And he's always cool under fire. And you see great action sequences. And that's kind of why you watch Bond. That's the Bond formula. Globe hopping, beautiful women, spy work. We all want to be him. So what I like about Honor Majesties is as a filmmaker, and I think you can take me to task on this, but as a filmmaker, they're taking chances. And for the first time since Goldfinger, and I love Thunderball, by the way, and there's a lot in You Only Live Twice that I really like. But by the time you get to You Only Live Twice, it, the only thing they can think to do is to kind of get bigger, get crazier. You can kind of feel they're like, where do we go with it? Honor Majesty's Secret Service is a bit of a reset. And they're like, actually, we're going to go more realistic. We're not going to have volcanoes. And even though they're silliness, we're actually going to deal with human emotion, which is a premise that I get hooked into, which is what if you were James Bond and everything was transactional, even your sexual relationships with women is to get information and you're not and you meet someone and you do fall in love. And for a moment, you're like. I could actually have another life. I could potentially have a wife and I could have kids and I could have something that's emotionally fulfilling. And I think that's there. And I enjoy that because that seems believable to me that a spy would wrestle with those things. And you don't normally see those in other Bond films because they're so escapist that they don't address those things. And I think that's what makes this one partially interesting. This is not a Jean La Carrere movie, though, or whatever. You know, the, yeah, yeah. this is Bond. I mean, I mean, to take a step back, look, part of what you're saying is correct. You know, I recently watched The Only Over Twice, and I had forgotten this. The screenplay is written by Roald Dahl. So, and that's what, number five, I uh -huh. think? Doctor No from Russia, Gold, Thunderball. And actually, and you and I both, you know, agree. From Russia with Love is also my favorite. But by number five, they were getting pretty nutty. There's a lot of stuff in that movie that I think he wrote as parody that was played straight, which gives that movie a very interesting feel to it. Right. So I understand the need to reset, and obviously a new actor is the perfect time to reset. It feels like they did that every time. I don't, don't think that the first Roger Moore movie was a total reset, but certainly the first Timothy Dalton. Daniel Craig, for Daniel sure. Daniel Craig. And but, even Pierce Brosnan. And Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. yeah. If you look at the Pierce Brosnan one, GoldenEye feels like the most realistic, and then they got sillier and sillier. So the reset's great in theory, but not if you take away everything that is Bond. And also, I guess I just don't care about Bond as a potential husband and father. I mean, that's what it comes down to. I want to see Bond being Bond. I don't want to see Bond wrestling with what could have been. And I hear that. And and he never did again. The closest that it got successfully, although I think World is Not Enough tried to do it. I only saw World is Not Enough once, and I fell asleep in it. I saw it with my stepdad. Which one's that one? It's Pierce Brosnan. It's the one where Robert Carlyle can't feel pain. Yeah. And it has the sub. Sophie Marceau. And it's supposed to be kind of like a Honor Majesty's Secret Service because it's played more dramatic. But I, that one I actually, I, I just mentioned, that's actually my least favorite Bond. Easy. Yeah, I would say probably some of those later, Brosnan, I would say um, For Your Eyes Only. Is, well, yeah, that's, that's bottom. Which is just, is just strange. Yeah, and so straightforward and bizarre and slow. What I was trying to get at, other than Honor Majesties and Casino Royale, they've never really done that. They never really tried to what could have been. So I, I understand your argument because even the producers understand that's not what Bond's about. But I have to say that's as so many, you know, and you had made this point, that Bond formula did not produce 30 masterpieces. The Bond formula, and I think you and I are agreed in this, correct me if I'm wrong, 
actually most of the Bonds are just okay or not even just okay. They're fun to watch when you catch them on TV. That Yeah, they're not great movies. And if you're honest about the Bond series, even though I will always go see the next Bond, I can't look anybody in the eye and be like, oh, the majority of those are, are masterpieces or are great cinema. That's also why I think Honor Majesty's Secret Service, one of my determinants for what is a great movie. You and I know this because we went to film school and we know these folks and maybe sometimes you and I have even been guilty of being these folks is there are people who will defend a movie because they're in love with the idea of the movie or they're in love with the idea of what they're saying, but not the reality of if the movie is good or not. I think the way you know if a movie's good or not is, do you put it on? No one's around. You're not arguing with anyone. You're not making a point. Do you watch it repeatedly? On Her Majesty's Secret Service, along with From Russia, along with Casino Royale, I watch those movies once every year or two. And it is a joy. It doesn't feel like work to me. I want to see them. I'm like, I got to put this in. I'm feeling in a Honor Majesty's Secret Service mood. And if that's the case, then that to me says that's got to be a good movie. I haven't seen The Adventures of Hudson Hawk, that Bruce Willis movie. <laughs> I have, unfortunately. Okay, since, since I saw it once with my stepdad in the theater. Okay. Now, I remember when I saw it, and I was a kid, I was 10 or however old I was, being like, wow, this is actually a fun movie. It never ends. He's kind of like the adventure begins and there's no downtime and he's always kind of quipping. And and I remember coming out of that and defending to a lot of people being like, I actually thought Hudson Hawk is better than people gave it credit for. I thought it was a lot of fun. Have I ever gone back to watch the adventures of Hudson Hawk? Never. I haven't seen it since I was 10. No, you're still exhausted from it. Yeah. It's I, exhausting. I, I, yeah. I, I saw it once. I've never seen it again. So if we were doing a podcast on Defend Hudson Hawk, I think I would be on the mat immediately because I'd be like, I haven't seen it since I was 10 and today. But I have watched Honor Majesty's Secret Service at least eight times. And I don't know how many movies I can say that about. So I must sure. love it. You must. Yeah. I just, I'm going to feel, I don't, I'm worried about sounding like a broken record. It, it's a couple things. Lazenby's weak. That is what it is. James Bond should never get married. I'm sorry. That's how I feel. But if he is going to get married, I have to believe the love story. And I just don't believe it here. I'm sorry. I just don't. Like, they spend a lot of time together in the beginning. But again, the moment work calls, the moment the office calls, he drops her. And he, I don't think he even says goodbye. Like, he's just gone. They're in the middle of a damn love story, a poorly told one, a poorly acted one. One half, she's good. But he gets a lead on Blofeld. He's gone. He doesn't say goodbye. He's just gone. And then... It only picks up because she happens to be in the town where he needs her when he's in trouble and she happens to be there because she's obsessed with him or something because we find out later that her dad told her where he might be. And then it's like, oh, you were here. You saved me. I guess maybe I love you. I don't know. I've said this a lot, and this may get down to one of the big differences between you and me. The audience should know that Steve and I uh, have been friends for over two decades now, and, and Steve was in my wedding, and Steve is one of just the kindest, most good-hearted people. No, you are. I don't know if that's true. But no, 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 it is. It is. Steve is, anybody who knows Steve Gress will tell you Steve is a stand-up guy. I mean, I don't know what that has to do with this debate, but that's the truth. <laughs> but one of the things that you and I do disagree on in cinema is I believe that cinema operates on dream logic. And I believe that cinema operates on music logic. I don't believe that cinema operates on narrative logic the same way that novels do or the same way that theater does. I really believe that movies 
are closer to dreams. I think I've told you this. I think you know this. I dream every night. I've been a vivid, active dreamer since I was a little kid. If I get enough sleep, I guarantee dreams. I can tell you that. I, and I dream journal. And dreams don't follow story logic the way that a novel does. You know, you're, you're in a room. Suddenly the character is your mom, but not your mom. You're the character. You're not the character. Suddenly you're somewhere else. And when you think about it, you're like, oh, it kind of makes a kind of psychological sense, but it doesn't make a narrative sense. And music is kind of the same in that you feel it. There's something very subconscious about it. So to me, your point. I agree with you. The storytelling in the movie is kind of weird. He's with her. And the moment he goes to get the photocopy, you were talking about it. We never see her again until uh, he escapes from Blofeld Chalet. Which, hold on. Somebody, by the way, in a movie where that's ostensibly a love story about the first time Bond gets married, he f***s every girl in between her and her. Like... I'm sorry. I don't know if I'm supposed to be stuck in the 60s or stuck in the 21st century here, but like he doesn't pass up a chance to f*** the chick after seeing her again. He's getting information, Steve. <sighs> Love for Bond pre-Diana Rigg, pre-Tracy was transactional. Uh, but, but here was my point before I get too off it. I concede to you that the storytelling is kind of weird, but psychologically, we get that Tracy is different from other Bond women. I think you feel that right away. In the first 40 minutes of the movie, Tracy has something that intrigues Bond. When he meets up with her again after he escapes from Blofeld Chalet, she is, I'm going to help you. She gets in the car. She becomes active. And you see Bond falling in love with her. I think you see this arc because he's like, not only is she an intriguing woman, But she's, you know, it's what I think any man or woman would want out of a relationship. She's supporting me. She's not overly guilting me about my flaws. And she's accepting me for who I am, warts and all. She's even trying to help me in the thing that I do. And I think in that car chase that you and I were talking about, from when they get in the car to when they end up in that barn, I think you see him really falling in love with her. And when he asks her to marry her, she is distinctly different from any woman he's ever been with. And I think the movie communicates that. When I see Diana Rigg, I fall in love like Lazenby does. There's something about her that is intriguing. And there's something about her also where she is getting behind what he does. And I think that works. I mean, the movie gives her more screen time than any previous Bond girl had ever received. In many ways, she would probably have been more known than Lazenby. Up until then, probably the most accomplished actress to play a Bond girl. Certainly most talented, and so she certainly does, has a lot of screen presence. I mean, who, yes, who wouldn't fall in love with her, I guess, in if you were in that situation? But he also treats her like shit. And then it's a love story. And then somehow there's supposed to be a spy movie in between where there's not a damn action scene until about an hour and a half in the movie, and then it's a ton of skiing, which is very well shot, but like, there's essentially one or two action scenes in the whole movie. It's an action movie. There's not a lot of thrills in this movie. And never mind the Blofelds. They made the very conscious decision to take Blofeld from where he was, like, barely seen in the first half of movies. And then in the previous movie, uh, You Only Live Twice, with Donald Pleasance, he's there, but he's still, like, you know, he's a very obvious, you know, uh, Dr. Evil inspiration with the bald head and, and the, you know, with the cat, but, you know, doesn't really say a whole lot, but has a very specific plan. In, in, in You Only Live Twice, Spectre is trying to pit the world's nations against each other in a world war to their own advantage, and how they're doing that because they've created some sort of space shuttle. On the slide, that's how, like I said earlier, 
That's how powerful they are. They've created a space shuttle way more powerful than anything the United States or the Soviet Union has been able to produce, which is pretty cool to think of, to contemplate. And if you're in 1967 and you're watching this movie, here, <laughs> Blofeld is a world-renowned allergist. I don't know if that's the right word. And actually, not snake oil salesman, has actually cured all these good-looking women's allergies. Why it's women, there's never explained, but just because it's a Bond movie. And then he's such a brilliant allergist, if that is the right word, he could just start a pharmaceutical company <laughs> and be a damn billionaire and be the Jeff Bezos of 1969. But no, he decides he wants to take over the world, which is probably more trouble than it's worth for him at this point. So he somehow has found a cure for allergies, found an effective way of hypnotizing people, then wants to blackmail the United Nations for a pardon? Like, that's what he wants. He wants to be pardoned for his crime. And to be recognized as Count de Bluechamp. Why? <laughs> if you're going to take over the world, why do you want to be a count? Like, it doesn't make any damn sense. If someone were like, look, you can be a count, or you can be a goddamn trillionaire, who would be like, I'd rather be a count? Crazy person, Steve. A crazy person who chopped off his own earlobes, also who's from New York and is never be recognized as being from the south of France. The movie makes so many like little mistakes like that. Uh, yeah, and you and I have talked about others, too. And I'm going to have to come back to a point that I was going to make. But also, too, and this is something that, that's a bit of a problem in all the Bond movies. Or not a problem, but it's just the way the beast works. There's not really continuity because Bond and Blofeld spent so much time looking at each other. In You Only right. Live Twice, that you're asked to believe in Honor Majesty's Secret Service that they wouldn't recognize each other when they first met each other. Or Bond knows it's Blofeld, but Blofeld doesn't know it's Bond. And, and there's something weird about that. So I, I think one of the strongest arguments you could make, you know, th there's this old saying or this old story, and I think it's true. It sounds interesting to me that if you had a cow on a scale at a fair... And you ask everybody, how much does that cow weigh? You get wildly different answers. You get some people that would say like 400 pounds. You get some people that would say 10,000 pounds. But weirdly, they've discovered that, and you may have heard this, that when you average everybody's guess, you actually get the weight of the cow. It's a really interesting human phenomenon that people can't explain. But when you take the average of what everybody guessed, it's usually like 800 pounds. And you're like, that was the weight of the cow. And so arguably, if you took people who love James Bond movies, and you said, what's your favorite Bond movie? I think it's probably fair that you're going to hear most people say from Russia with Love or Goldfinger. I don't disagree with it. Actually, I'm curious. I don't know. Goldfinger is considered to be sort of the gold standard. Yeah. I, I, but, but no, I think a lot of people think this is the best one. I think the, the strongest point I can make in a weird way that may actually end up undoing my point. But my favorite Tarantino is Jackie Brown. Ooh. Right. And anybody who knows Tarantino who loves Tarantino would be like, what? You know, now let me tell you what my other ones are because they might overlap. My three favorites are Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think those are his three strongest. Uh, what would you say are his three strongest? I think Pulp Fiction holds up. I've only seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood once, but I'd have to say probably that as much as I liked it. And then either Django or Reservoir Dogs. So in what you and I just said, you and I overlapped on Once Upon a Time in Reservoir Dogs, but not on Jackie Brown and not on Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, I really, really admire and I, I would watch it any day of the week, but that's a conversation for another time. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is there are those fans who like the movie that a lot of other people don't like. 
and they're like, that's the good one. I wish I could say it better. But, you know, if there's like a musician you like, uh, some people will be like, that's their best album. People are like, what? Well, a musician, sometimes it's like the commercial success versus the you know, artistic, success. artistic success. Like movies, say, it's a little different, though. I think. Sometimes so, sometimes not. The reason I love Jackie Brown is because it exists in an L.A. that I recognize. And being a native Los Angelino, the apartment complex that Sam Jackson goes to to get Chris Tucker, the South Bay, the, almost the whole movie takes place in South Bay and the Del Alma Mall. Like to me, I go, wait, this movie exists in the real world. I know this world. And Jackie Brown's relationship with um, Robert Forrester's Bail Bondsman, these people in middle age who are kind of falling in love. I'm like, I recognize that relationship. Ordell, Sam Jackson's character, and Robert De Niro in there, I recognize that relationship. Bridget Fonda as Ordell's, like, surfer girl in Manhattan Beach, I recognize that. I know these people. I know that world. That's the real world. When I see other Tarantino movies, and I, I like Tarantino, I want to be very clear, but I feel like I'm seeing Tarantino's version of World War II. I would guess I would say, but what's wrong with that? No, though? it's not. Way, you're right. Yes, I recognize that Jackie Brown is set in a, a world, maybe a world that not a lot of people recognize because they're not Southern Los California, Angelinos, yeah. and especially the South Bay is a very specific place, and you recognize it more than more than others. I recognize that you're right about that. I just don't think it's that good of a movie, though. As realistic as the setting may be, and oh yeah, I recognize those people. Django Unchained may not be anything close to the reality, and yet I think it's a better movie. And so what I'm trying to get at is that I love Jackie Brown. I think Jackie Brown is Tarantino's best movie. I realize I think I'm, you couldn't be more wrong. And I realize I'm in the minority opinion on that. But I love Jackie Brown. And the only other movie of his, the only other two movies of his that I really love are Reservoir Dogs and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I would say that a Bond movies, I recognize them in the minority opinion on Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I don't think you are, though, actually. You think a lot of people? I think a lot of casual fans, no. But I think a lot of people who identify as Bond fans, yes. That's kind of why we're here. That's what, I don't get it. Bond is, I guess, pretending to be gay for a whole portion of it, right. which is like, I don't know if it's bad acting or bad directing, but like their version of acting gay is just, I guess, n not responding to girls' come-ons. A lot of the women are like, I didn't think you'd like girls. Normally, I don't. Yeah, ex exactly. It, apparently, that line works. <laughs> I'm not attracted to... Normally, I'm only attracted to the men, but you broke that for me, so let's have sex. I don't know what obviously playing gay would even be in 1969, but, like, I remember the first time seeing it, like, three calls away that I'd seen, I was like, oh, he's pretending to be gay. How come I didn't get that? Mm. It's only because their reaction, so it's, it's not well done. Never mind a blowfat has a lair on the top of a mountain that could be easily cut off. All they have to do is, like, not let helicopters go up and down and he'd be screwed. Bond also goes, when it cuts back to him and M, he says to M, let's just cut him off. I can tell you how to stop him right now. No, Bond, we're not going to do that. How's he do it? They do exactly what Bond said. Each scene only sort of happens because the filmmakers are determined to make it happen. It's not realistic. M goes, no, Bond, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it does make sense. And that's what they end up doing. I think it's bad storytelling. I think it's bad acting. I had this perverse idea that the reason why Bond fans like it is, A, Diana Rigg, which legit, she's great. But also, I think there's something that a lot of Bond fans are semi-ashamed of being Bond fans because of the misogyny mm. and the womanizing. Mm. It's not cool, to a certain extent, to like Bond because of those reasons. It's cool when you're young, but you become a certain age of a man. You're like, mm -hmm. but what about Honor Majesty's Secret Service? He gets married. I like that's my favorite one. Like, and so there's a, it's, it's a weird apologist issue going on. 
and I'm just not going to buy into it. I'm going to go, I like Bond. I like Bond Wayne's womanizing. And when he's not, I don't like it. It's almost like a Bond apologist's sort of like secret weapon, if you will, to be like, oh, but uh, yeah, okay, so, you know, you say you like Bond, especially in this day and age, and people have complaints about it, and they say, oh, you like this, like that. Well, what about this movie? I feel like it's kind of a cop-out. We sometimes do this thing where we convince ourselves that we like these movies that are more because they're sophisticated, not because they're good. I totally get your argument. And I think there's something interesting, because in this movie, we see Bond scared. You and I were pointing that out. We see Bond more vulnerable. We see Bond more emotional. And it is true that in the other movies, for a long, 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 long time, he's just totally transactional with women, with everything. But all I can tell you is that if it was an apologist Bond, I wouldn't go back and watch it over and over again. But take out Diana Rigg. What were you coming back to this movie for? I think this is one of the best directed Best edited Bonds? Well-edited action scenes, definitely. For 1960s second-unit ski stuff, it's good. But I I go beyond that, Steve. We can disagree on this, but I I disagree with you. I agree that there should have been an action sequence at the beginning. I think that's legit. I think that we have to wait an hour and 20 minutes or whatever, hour and a half till we get a legit action sequence is a mistake of the film, for sure. You're watching a Bond movie. We should have had an action sequence in the opener. We should have had an action sequence in the first act. Really, the ski sequence is what you would call the midpoint the midpoint second act sequence that triggers the second half of the second act that leads into the third act. But this is probably of all the Bond action sequences, my favorite Bond action sequence because, oh no, I'm sorry. There are two that I love. This one and the one in From Russia With Love from the moment they get on the train with Robert Shaw to when he blows up all the oil barrels and they finally get to Venice because it's Action sequence upon action sequence upon action sequence. And when you watch Honor Majesty's Secret Service, he escapes the chalet. He skis down the hill. He meets Diana Rigg. They get in a car. They suddenly have a car chase. They're suddenly in a stock car action sequence. That that part's a little forced. Whether it's forced or not, I think it's pretty dope. They then bone in a farm where I'm like, word. And then they get up and they're skiing down a hill in another sequence. And I would say that these two sequences, the From Russia with Love sequence and the Honor Majesty's Secret Service is what created Indiana Jones. And when I see those two sequences, what you see is out of the frying pan into the fire, out of the frying pan into the fire, out of the frying pan into the fire. And that is very hard to do in action, to go to Trump, to Trump, to Trump, to Trump, to Trump. And I would probably say that Raiders did it better than almost anybody. Well, yeah. But I think you see the genesis of that in From Russia, and you see the genesis of that in Honor Majesties, and I love the movies for that. So when you said, take out Diana Rigg and what do you have, I think you have amazing direction, amazing editing, and one of the best Bond action upon action upon action sequence. I'm not shilling for this movie because this is the straw that I pulled. No, I know. I think this movie works. I also understand... That if I showed people this movie and then showed them Casino Royale, or I showed people this movie and then showed them From Russia with Love, I really could see a lot of people being like, huh, I prefer those other movies because they're more fun. I prefer those other movies because the action is more consistent. I prefer those other movies because they feel more Bond to me. I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Like, in some ways, the best Bond movie should also be the most Bond movie. Not necessarily, but, like, it's weird to think that someone's favorite Bond movie is an abnormal Bond movie. So, closing statements. I would just put it to the audience and to you that... Even though I've made these arguments and I've wanted to concede from the beginning, 
Yes, this is an atypical Bond. You can look at a lot of facts in the movie that you have to acknowledge. Lazenby didn't come back. They didn't make another movie like this until Casino Royale. I mean, maybe they tried once or twice, but it didn't work. And usually the Bond formula that works is not this Bond formula. And so I think you have to look at all that in an open-eyed way. And as we said, Lazenby, I think Lazenby is actually fine. I don't think he's bad. He's okay. He's okay, yeah. He's not awful. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's important. But but he's not Connor. He's not even. He's not Connor. He's not Roger Moore. He, he, yeah, he's not. He's, he's easily the least of the Bonds. I'm sorry, but he's also he's not awful. But that's also true. He is the least of the Bonds, and I think you have to say all those things. But I would say that we always have to be careful about in movies the commercial argument, because there are plenty of movies that made tons of money that no one remembers, and there are movies that. At that time, people were like, what is this? That 10 years later, 20 years later, people are still watching. They're still engaging. And I would just say that Honor Majesty's Secret Service is the latter. It's a movie that was atypical, that a lot of people were like, what is this? It's a James Bond movie. And yet, I would argue, I even remember when I was a little kid, I think we talk about Honor Majesty's Secret Service now more than we even talked about it in the 80s or in the 90s. I think that every decade, Bond fans discover this movie and it becomes the movie that everybody talks about. Like, for instance, you and I are not doing a divisive podcast about, you know, For Your Eyes Only. We're not doing a divisive podcast about Octopussy. We're not doing a divisive podcast about Tomorrow Never Dies. We're not doing a divisive podcast about Quantum of Solace. Like, those movies no one talks about anymore because they're often considered not the great ones. You and I are debating this because this is a debate that exists that a lot of people are having, which says to me that this movie has something to it that is unresolved, that people are, are wrestling with. And, you know, and by the way, like him or hate him, Christopher Nolan literally devoted Inception to his love of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. That whole ski sequence and the dream planet, that's all just lifted from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. So... Clearly, it's had a huge impact on filmmakers of today and Bond fans. And I would just argue that the movie clearly has worth and has merit and is a good movie because 60 years after it was made, 50 years after it's made, you and I are here talking about it on a Saturday night. And we're not doing that about the other 28 Bond films. We are talking about it. I just don't I I still I honestly don't understand why this is like this is an interesting Bond movie. It should be, in my opinion, it should be a footnote. It, it was the first George Lazenby, first and only George Lazenby. It was the first one without Sean Connery. And you're right. Reaction at the time doesn't mean how good it was. But certainly reaction at the time was, there's varying you know, debates as to whether or not they wanted George Lazenby back and he left on his own or they let him go. But very, very clearly, when he didn't come back, they threw gobs of money back at Connery to come back. And the very first thing they did was sort of reestablish the Connery bond. Now, that movie... Diamonds Are Forever is terrible, but if you remember the beginning, the beginning is very much a reaction to this movie. It almost kind of trying to make sure this movie didn't exist. The opener is him trying to find Blofeld, right? Yeah, it's because Tracy's died. Because Tracy died, but it's a very much a Connery bond. Connery's roughing people up. So it's not like they pretend it didn't happen, but they're trying to sort of have their cake and eat it too in terms of like, this is what we did. We got to acknowledge it, but we're trying right. to get back to what we do. Clearly, the bomb producers thought this was a mistake and never did it again. Whether that was strictly commercial or not, I don't really know. My whole thing is, I don't think it works as a Bond movie when it comes down to it. There's very little spy shit. There's not very much action. 
The action doesn't happen for an hour and a half. It's one long action sequence. Yes, it's one after the other, but these are the kind of movies that should have an action, open with action sequence, have an action sequence at, you know, minute 15, another one at minute 30. And it's just him riding around on a horse with Tracy. To a dope Louis Armstrong song. Yes, the music is very good. But he does n- almost no spy stuff. He resigns or he goes on two-week vacation. He falls in love. He leaves her at the moment he finds out about Blofeld. Blofeld's got the most bizarre plan to take over the world that makes no sense where he had a legitimate shot to become a multi-trillionaire just by playing it straight. Bond plays gay for some reason. Bond is on maybe the most important spy mission in the world at this time to find Blofeld, and he's got one guy on the ground helping him out. There's just so many problems with this movie, but I really also think that I know you legitimately like it, but I feel like half the people who 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 are fans of this movie, it's almost like an apologist Bond movie. Like, no, he's not always. You know, he he gets tried to get married once. I like that movie too. It's an apologist Bond movie. And I don't care for it. Well, there you go. There was a debate. I think the only thing we can say now is people should watch it and make up their own mind. You should watch it. Even though I don't like it as a Bond movie, it's an interesting movie. You should definitely see it. And it's got one of the coolest layers of all time. So we'll give it that. Yeah. And and make up your own mind about it. Secret Movie Club audience. And and there you go. Steve and I debated. But I think it's also interesting for whatever it's worth as we wrap this up that nevertheless, you and I agree that From Russia With Love is the best. And that you and I agree that From Russia With Love is the best. That's an argument for that movie gets the Bond formula perfectly. I think it's, it's not ridiculous. Yeah. But it's not underplayed. So people should probably watch from Russia and Honor Majesty's Secret Service. See the one that Steve and I agree on and then see the one that Steve and I disagree on and make up your own mind. And then real fast for those who want further, you know, viewing knowledge who maybe aren't. I'm assuming that most people listening to this probably are Bond fans. But if you're not, it'd be from Russia with love. Goldfinger is the one that sort of critically is considered to be like the one that really crystallized the Bond formula. Although you and I like uh, the previous one more. Thunderball is dope. Yeah. And then I would say that the probably the best Roger Moore one is The Spy Who Loved Me. Easy. Which is in some ways the quintessential with like the megalomaniac who wants to take over the world and sort of gets the right combo of like silliness and fun with the gadgets and everything. And he's still kicking ass. And then I, I to be honest, I kind of like Timothy Dalton as Bond, but I don't like the Timothy Dalton movies, if that makes sense. I think he gets a bad rap as James Bond. And I think it's the movies were terrible. You know, I haven't seen Living Daylight since it came out, but I remember liking Living Daylight. Yeah. Doesn't Living Daylights hold up? No, that one's pretty good. And then I remember thinking Goldeneye was pretty good. I haven't seen it forever. You know, weirdly, my favorite Brosnan is the second one. Which uh, is that? The Tomorrow Never Dies with Jonathan Price is the media mogul and Michelle Yeoh. Oh, yeah, and that motors. one was pretty good. That one I like. I, but you Only Live Twice is ridiculous but fun. Uh, uh, that one's a fun cultural event. And then uh, and then you should watch a couple of uh, uh, Roger Moore's specifically Spy Love Me. There we, this is our inaugural debate. Yeah. This is definitely a movie that some people love, some people don't. Check it out. We'll have more. This was Steve's idea. Uh, we finally got to do it. And uh, we'll do other movies that folks think work, think don't work. And uh, we'll talk about it. So Now I'd be curious the feedback of A, people who are sort of self-identified Bond fans, how they feel about this movie, and people who aren't necessarily Bond fans, how they feel about this movie. Let's see. We'll see who watches it, and we'll see the feedback. So, Steve, it was wonderful having you on. Thank you. My pleasure. As always, Secret Movie Clubbers, this episode was edited by Connor Lloyd Cruz. 
who is our chief creative content officer, we could not be experimenting with these different shows uh, and these different original content projects without Connor. Connor is the engine of everything that we are doing. So I just want to, again, give a shout out to Connor, who is making sure that these things get done and get to you. Next week, we will be back with our regular podcast, the Secret Movie Club podcast. Uh, the whole team will reassemble like Voltron. And next week, we are going to be talking about Stanley Kubrick's amazing run of back-to-back -back, uh, Strange Love 2001. And then we're going to talk about other directors' incredible runs. Uh, it often seems like directors make their greatest movies back to back. That doesn't always happen, but it strangely happens quite a bit. And actually, it makes a sort of sense when you're at the height of your powers. Uh, that's probably for a few years, you're really in the zone. And those are going to be when you make your great movies. Now, Kubrick made great movies his whole life. Uh, but it's amazing that within the course of like one movie and then the next movie, it was Strange Love and then 2001. You could look at Spielberg with Raiders and E.T. You could look at Kurosawa with Akuru and Seven Samurai. You could look at Francis Ford Coppola with Godfather 1, The Conversation, Godfather 2, Apocalypse Now. That's a crazy run. Uh, and many, many others. So join us next week, next Friday, when we discuss that. Steve Grest. Uh, recommended this. He recommended the movie. He recommended the format. If you want to hear your thoughts, just go to our social media at Secret Movie Club or at Secret Movie Club 35 millimeter MM. Or you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com or podcast at secretmovieclub.com. But we definitely love to get you involved in the conversation and the debate. And that's it. Thank you, Secret Movie Clubbers. Watch great movies. The debate will continue. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thank you.